Good morning. Welcome back. Fall is in the air. And there are no pressing announcements. We have the call to worship. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us turn to our hymns to 190, 190. We're thankful, Lord, for the ability to be here, to learn of your word, of your grace, of your power and your might, God above, and for, Lord, bringing us together, for giving us regeneration, for giving us hearts of love towards you and towards one another. We pray, God, that we would continue to persevere in the Christian faith in accordance to the Lord's prayers you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be. You may be seated. We have the reading of Psalm 19, which is in the insert. I'll read the bold face. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Which is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Keep keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. So Psalm 19 is the classic Bible text chapter that we go to, to learn and speak of general revelation and special revelation. General revelation meaning that which is revealed around us in nature or natural revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show his handiwork. You can't help but see that there is a creator of all things and a sustainer of all things. And then we read in verse 7, following the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And there we read the supernatural law of God, or the special revelation of God given to us in his word, his law in particular, written down in the Torah in the Old Testament, of course, and in the New Testament expanded in its application and depth for us, that we learn about God in particular, not just in general as a judge, 
but as a savior as well, and redeemer of his people. Let us go before him in prayer and supplication. Glorious God above, creator of heaven and earth, you from eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, deign to bring us into existence, Lord, and planned for our deliverance and salvation, and the guidance of all things through your providential care. We stand in wonder and awe, God, as we see the things of creation, as we see the things, the depths of creation, Lord, the depths of space, of the supernovas, of, Lord, wonderful, majestic planets that dance through the skies. And, God, as we also see through the creation, and in particular of this world, Lord, of the animals, of the insects, of the plants and of the trees, as we dig down, Lord, into smaller things, we see great harmony, we see great detail and great order. Things, Lord, we wish to understand more of, and we stand in awe as we learn more of these things, and we studied some of them when we were in school, God, and perhaps we see more of them on our own, in our own studies, Lord, as a good edification that more and more the world sees, Lord, the scientists see. Great order, great organization, everything that points to you. In any, in any other endeavor of life, in criminal courts, in practical matters of state fair and family affairs as well, if we saw such order, we would draw this the conclusion that somebody's behind this building, someone's behind this plot, someone's behind this event, and that someone we know is you. Help us, Lord, to continue to read your word as well and to dig into the depths therein to learn more of your love and your grace and your power and your might and your justice, Lord. We ask, God, for we who are yours, we who struggle with sins, God, that we would acknowledge such sins daily. We would come before you in prayer and supplication not just as family, Lord, but as individuals, as need arises, and also to praise your name, to magnify and glorify you, Lord, as we see again the wonders of this world, although fallen. Help us, God, to trust in your gospel, to trust in the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners, justifies the ungodly, as we read in Romans 4. How can that be? It is because of your great love, your great mercy, your act of compassion upon we who do not deserve it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray as members of families, God, that we would continue to honor our parents. We continue to help our children even as they've grown up into adulthood, Lord. And that becomes harder, of course, because we're more hands-off. We should still pray for them and pray for one another as family members, God. And especially for those who are not Christians, for those who deny the faith, for those who are not interested in the God of the Bible. Our hearts go out to them, God, because they are our flesh and blood. May we, Lord, persevere, and may you move their hearts to trust and follow you, God, and to confess you before men. We pray and ask, God, that you'd help us as family members, Lord, especially the young, still under the roof of their parents, Lord, to obey them, and as in the Lord, because they wish to follow you, Lord, and to prepare themselves and to learn and grow from their parents. We ask, God, for the parents to continue to show love and compassion and instruction for the children to do what they can the limitations that they have find themselves, Lord, which can be very overwhelming at times, very frustrating, because we want the best for our children. That we would do what we can, always trusting in you, Lord, to cover our sins and our limitations. We ask, God, that you'd be with our families, that they would grow thereby and be protected from the evils of this world, and that we would, as church members, as those who are couples and singles, and those with children have grown up and left the household, God, to know that we are examples for one another. Examples for the couples, examples for the singles, God, 
We ask, Lord, that they too will continue to grow in knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, God. They don't have children, they're not married yet, whatever the case may be, and that they can still follow you and do what they are called to do, given their callings and vocations in life, given where they are in your providence. And so, God, we ask for our work situation as well, that you help us to that end, to work us unto the Lord, to seek out better employment if need be, God, to be wise with our finances and our abilities, Lord, to grow in our work abilities, to be better at this job or perhaps another job or another career. We're thankful for the opportunity to do that, Lord. Again, in this weak economy, this strange economy, God, we pray especially for Christians who are seeking better employment. Companies are saying that they want more workers, they're short on workers, and workers are saying we're asking for work and they're not hiring us. So there's this disconnect going on here, Lord, and it affects our fellow neighbors, but especially affects brothers and sisters in the Lord. We pray for them, whoever they may be, that you would help them, God, find better work, good employment, and long-standing employment, God, to support their families. We ask and pray, God, that those who are Christians, who own companies, who are self-employed, that they would do what they can to be good employers, good bosses of their workers, Lord, and fair and just, and to do what they can again, given the restraints and restrictions of the economy and prices going up and it's hurting their bottom line, uh, that, Lord, they, they would be given wisdom and perseverance, God, to do the right thing as best they can, given their limited options, Lord, and even on their un- limited understanding, God. We pray, Lord, that they would continue to be a witness on their jobs, all of us, Lord, as Christians, wherever we may be, for people who are watching us, our coworkers, our bosses, uh, those underneath us, Lord, and that we would do the right thing, admit our error, and carry on to do even better work. Again, as unto the Lord God, and not unto man. We pray, Lord, for our church and our denomination, for our Presbyterian, Lord, to do the right thing, for uh, our members therein, to support one another, to encourage one another, and to help one another. We pray in particular, Lord, for the young and old alike, in a day and age in which youth is idolized, it seems to be almost worships, Lord, in a severe degree. Everything's geared towards them, and there's little thought of the old, perhaps even thoughts of getting rid of them, for they're just a burden. We pray, God, that we would continue to show proper respect uh, toward our uh, elders here, Lord, both those who are older than us and those with greater experience, God, and those with the office given to them, of course. And for the youth, God, that they would continue to use their strength and energy, even though they may uh, feel undervalued at times, Lord, in the churches, God that they would still do the right thing to lend their strength and their creativity and their energy, God, uh, to the church and to those in need around them. We ask, Lord, for continued harmony in our church and our denomination and our Presbyterian Lord God above, that your Spirit would be with us and we would grow in the fruits of the Spirit. For your glorious name we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings.
let us rise. you God above and thankful again for the many blessings you've bestowed upon us even though we wish things were better uh, in America and our economy and the like God and yet we have so much and we're thankful for that God may these tithes and offerings be an expression of our hearts of thankfulness and of desire Lord for the expansion of your kingdom use them we pray amen while we are standing let us sing hymn 194 194 Apostles' Creed, which is a summary of many important truths in Christian life. Very brief summary, in fact. It's in the green insert inside the bullet, uh, inside the hymnal, Psalter hymnal. Let us read it together. 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and a life everlasting. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles, to Romans chapter 4. This is a very dense chapter in Paul's writings. Let us listen attentively to the word of God, Romans chapter 4, verse 11, speaking of Abraham. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Let us pray. We read here, God above, of the fact that Abraham was saved, not because of the ceremony of the Old Testament, Lord, but because of his belief and trust in you, and that all those who believe in Jesus Christ are saved and are justified. God justifies the ungodly through Jesus Christ by faith alone. And so, Lord, Paul teaches what some consider a New Testament doctrine, but it's really been there in the Old Testament, although not highlighted to the extent that Paul did, because it was so obvious to them. And it's there in the Old Testament from these texts as we see in elsewhere. And a reminder in particular, Lord, that you had given them Circumcision and the Passover and all the other sacrifices as well as sacraments, as signs and seals of the covenant of grace, and in particular as means of grace to help them grow, not to save them as such, but to help them become more like Jesus because they are already saved. And so, God, we have the same true in the New Testament. We have simply two sacraments, Lord, as you know. And may we be encouraged thereby to participate fully in them and to grow thereby. In your name alone we pray. Amen. John was struggling with his marriage. Life was difficult and tensions high. His marriage didn't seem worth it. They were both distant and decidedly unhelpful towards each other. The devil whispered in his ear many a time to give up and leave the marriage. He knew what the Bible said. Of course, that is wrong. He prayed. He sought help and advice. But these things never seemed to strengthen his resolve the way a long stare at his marriage ring did. Why is that? Because the ring is a sign, a symbol of the relationship that was started with a strong commitment of love. And it was also a reminder, a memorial of his commitment to God and his marriage. When he donned that ring 20 years ago, it sealed his love. And every time he stared at it with heavy heart, it helped strengthen, that is, steal or seal his resolve. The Lord's Supper and baptism are signs and seals of God's love to you. 
He is the one committed to you in spite of your distance and unhelpfulness and sins. He continues to woo you to himself, to give you visible signs of his invisible love to you. And those signs strengthen your conscience against the temptation of the evil one in sin. To better understand this, let us look at the Bible to establish the truth that a sacrament is indeed part of the Christian growth as a sign and seal of the covenant of God's love to you. The first point, then, is the means of grace. I mentioned it before, and we have it again, in particular here in this text. The means of grace are given by God and used by the Holy Spirit for your growth. Growth meaning what? That's your sanctification, to become more godly and more holy and more obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ and His ways. As means of grace, they are tools or instruments used by the Spirit, when and how he wishes. Sometimes we have the Lord's Supper and we perceive no particular growth thereby. And that's not, it's not necessarily because of a particular sin. Things happen in God's providence and the Spirit is working in his timing and his ways. And it may be over time that you eventually grow thereby. You may not have any immediate effect thereby because the Spirit moves as he wills. And although he ordinarily uses the means, he can do something different in his time. The growth that we are speaking of in sanctification, that is to be set aside from the world, that's the imagery of the Old Testament, the language of the New Testament, picking up on all the moral implications of the ceremonial law in the Old Testament, right? They were a chosen people, a holy nation, to follow God's law. And, of course, they were given things that we don't have to follow anymore to specifically look different, although we will look different if the world uh, addresses in the worst manner. We're still going to stick out, but if they don't, that's fine. But they were purposely designed in the Old Testament to stand out differently in their clothing and their food and the like to further reinforce the basic moral lesson that you're supposed to be holy. You're supposed to be set aside in what you do and what you say and what you think in accordance to God's law. That is sanctification. And we continue that truth today, although without the outward trappings of specifically how to dress and eat, we have a lot more freedom. But the moral law is still the same. You still have the same Ten Commandments. And that is how we are especially going to stand out and look different. And in part of that growth, God has given us the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's it. Just those two. And God has given it to us to help us grow and also help us set aside from the world. Because unbelievers are not baptized. Unbelievers don't take the Lord's Supper. It's a form of sanctification that way. To set you aside publicly from those who do not follow Jesus. The growth in particular is mental, volitional, and emotional. Those are the three you know, major parts of the soul. Conscience as well, although that's instructed by your mind. John's growth, to carry on the picture and the story of John... John's growth in his marriage was not merely mental, of course. He knew what the Bible's command was about marriage, and that made a difference. If he didn't know, he would easily give up and divorce, perhaps. You've got to have the knowledge. There's this weird, reflexive push in conservative circles. We, you don't want to run around with too much head knowledge. Brothers and sisters, we have quite the opposite. <laughs> 
<laughs> the polls show over and over again. Your own experience, you've seen it yourself. You've grown in the Christian faith. You knew how ignorant you were, some of you, growing up like I was. It's quite the opposite in the churches. We have the opposite problem. There's just too much ignorance. We ever get to the problem that we have so much head, head knowledge, we're just running around thinking we're better than everyone else, and we don't care about how we live and how we act, then we would have that as a problem. Although it could be the case for some people, but on the whole, I would argue, is not the problem. And so the mental state for John actually helped and protected him. That is, he knew, he had that knowledge, and he believed that knowledge. Otherwise, he would have already divorced. But he was still struggling volitionally and emotionally. And these are the things in particular that were hurting him and holding him back. His emotional response to the crisis was changed from despair, however, to hope by meditating not on the ring as such, but the ring became a reminder and pointed to the relationship itself, right? Obviously, the ring is not the relationship. Obviously, the Lord's Supper and baptism are not the relationship with Jesus, but rather tokens or outward manifestations of that real relationship, and there in particular to increase and strengthen you, to help you emotionally, to help you volitionally, to do the right thing. To die to the old person and to live to the new in the image of Jesus Christ, being recreated into the new humanity and our Lord's Savior. Death to the old ways, as we heard in the last sermon, the ways of thinking, the ways of speaking, the ways of doing, the ways of emoting, the ways of willing. And renewing ourselves with new desires and thoughts of God and His glory. The Lord's Supper and baptism, the means of grace God has given us, help us to that extent. And the means of grace God has given us requires exercising faith, and of course the Spirit is there, and we always need the Spirit of God. The means of grace by the Spirit, as I mentioned before, are not automatic. In particular, it's not a magic elixir that if I just take the Lord's Supper, without faith, without believing in Jesus, without meditating upon His blood and His love for me, and his call of my life to be holy, you're not going to get much from it. The Roman Catholic Church, to speak of one denomination, uh, teaches something different. You just have to have an implicit faith and abracadabra. You have a, somehow you grow without much knowledge. But God has tied our faith to knowledge. We read that over and over again. The whole New Testament wouldn't be there if it was just simply emoting. That's what, you, that's what it means to be a Christian. You just emote. You just have these emotions and feelings. But rather, you're supposed to read the New Testament, meditate upon it, that is, chew the cut, as it were, like a cow in the best sense of the word. You're contemplating, what does it mean? What's the significance? And how do I live it? And how should it change and strengthen my faith? You must continue to believe and grow in your faith by reading and learning from the Bible, by living a life of obedience. Having the Lord's Supper and baptism, do not replace that, but assume that kind of a Christian life. Because you could end up like the Huguenots, right? The French Calvinists, where decade upon decade they had no access to the Lord's Supper because there were no more ministers. Can you imagine that? Does that mean they're not Christians? Does that mean they can't grow? Sure, you can grow. It's hard to grow. I didn't say it's not, not hard. It's going to be hard. You want to have the Lord's Supper. You want to have preaching in particular. But it can be done, although it hurts and hurts a lot. Now, there are different means of grace. I've alluded to a little bit of that here without using that language. 
I speak of, in, in my research, it's not usually talked of this way, but informal, private, or unofficial means of grace, and then the formal, public, or official means of grace. And you'll see what I mean in a minute. You've got to read the Bible. You've you got to pray. The pastor can't read the Bible for you. The pastor can't pray for you. And are those not things the Spirit uses to help you grow as a Christian? Yes or no? Yes. And what else are you going to call that but a means of grace, a, a tool, an instrument that the, the Spirit uses? I mean, again, right, to use the parallel of everyday life, does the Spirit of God feed you food for your mouth and your belly? And your answer is, as a well-instructed Christian audience, yes, he does through the means of providence. He doesn't drop food from heaven, but he works it such that if you want to eat, you've got to work. You, you got to go out in the field. You got to find somebody who already has the food, and you grab it. And you put it in your mouth, and you chew. But we know it's the spirit behind all that, because without God, none of that can happen, because it's His universe. And so, in a similar fashion, with the means of grace, you always need the Spirit. You know you have the Spirit because you believe in Jesus Christ, and you hate your sins. So, daily devotions, family worship, Bible reading, meditation, which is nothing fancy or mystical or magical. It just means thinking and contemplating on the text in your head. And memorization, of course, is good of the Word of God and prayer. Christians have done that. You see the Old Testament saints have done that. Before they had the Mosaic Law, they prayed, they cried out to God. Formal, public, or official means of grace is what we typically think of in our confessions. Uh, prayer, preaching, and the sacraments. That is public prayer of the pastor's community prayer that we should all participate in. And preaching, of course, the Spirit's tool to bring you closer to Jesus, and without which the sacraments are meaningless. You should not have baptism. You should not have the preaching of the Lord's Supper, or giving of the Lord's Supper without preaching accompanying those two events because they explain the symbolism of the act that you are participating in and they point to Jesus Christ in a more clearer fashion than the symbolism could ever do because Jesus is not bread obviously Jesus is not wine but he sits on the right hand of God in heaven right now how can you say that in symbolism you can't words are better But God, again, knows our weaknesses and gives us the Lord's Supper to give us symbolism for our eyes, our hands, and even our mouth. Sacraments, again, are baptism, the Lord's Supper, sometimes called the Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving, or communion, because it's a picture of our communion or communing or fellowshipping with our Lord and Savior. The sacraments define, so the means of grace I spoke of in the first point, in general, in particular here, now we drill into the sacraments defined. They are a particular or a special type of means of grace, which is the broader category. Catechism question 92, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, right? It comes from him and him alone, not whatever the church feels like putting together, wherein by sensible signs, that is, appealing to the senses, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant, the benefits of Christ working and giving us a new covenant, are represented, 
sealed and applied to believers. That's a sacrament in a more particular language here. And I say it in a very summary form. It's a sign and seal. It's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Here they get more particular, sensible signs, and it does sealing and applying upon our conscience the grace of God in our lives. Now what's interesting here in the sacraments and the text used to defend what a sacrament is, that there is a sacrament, and that a sacrament is a sign and seal, are Old Testament passages. In 1 Corinthians 10.4 we read Paul writing to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10.4, all ate, he argued, all the Jews ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Right? So there we read physical acts tied to spiritual acts. Because although he's speaking of the spiritual, they drank of that spiritual rock and they ate of that spiritual food. We know in the record of the Old Testament, what did they do? They ate manna and they drank water. Those are physical acts. And yet he speaks of spiritual realities, right? He's tying the two together, isn't he? Paul is in 1 Corinthians 10. And we have explicit connection with the bread of the Lord's Supper, so it's not just an Old Testament interesting phenomenon occurring here, but Paul is applying it to the New Testament occurrence of the Lord's Supper. Because as you know, he gets there in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 10, 17, as he continues on here talking about unity in the church, for we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. What's he talking about? Talking to the Christians at Corinth, what one bread? What, talking about the Lord's Supper. He's not talking about what happened in the Old Testament, the manna and the water. He's now jumping to the New Testament era. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of. Or excuse me, I jumped ahead. Observe Israel after the flesh are not those who eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. And so, the language and the theological understanding of what the ceremonial system was giving us a sacrament a sign and seal in which physical acts parallel spiritual acts, although clearly there in the Old Testament, Paul says it's also clearly for us today. It's given to us in this bread. You can't make New Testament arguments using the Old Testament by saying they're two different theologies, can you? It has to obviously be one theology because it's one religion. The Old Testament sacramental activities are tied to Christ of the Lord's Supper and applied to today. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7 we read, For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Old Testament language, Passover, no more Passovers today, yet he's talking about Passover, the, the significance of the Passover. The moral significance is for us today. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ is applied the issues of today in a sacrifice and a particular church unity and the taking of the Lord's Supper there in Corinthians. That's the point. To get into the details here, just a little bit. Sacrament is a sign and seal, covenant of grace. Sign and seal. Romans 4.11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. There's the language from the Bible itself, sign and seal. And it's applied to an Old Testament activity, right? The ceremonial activity in the Old Testament. And we know that's only one of many ceremonial activities. Paul applies, as I read in 1 Corinthians 10, other Old Testament events, the Passover. In fact, just being in the wilderness. 
eating the manna from heaven and the water from the rock, Paul says, is significant, is a ceremonial activity, is a sacrament or a sign in the seal. A sign is a visible or a tangible it's visible, it's most likely tangible, even on a piece of paper. Eagles represent America's might, of course. It's a symbol. It's visible. World War II Memorial represents the military's commitment and the men who sacrificed themselves. A certificate of graduation is not your graduation, but represents or symbolizes the hard work you did, doesn't it? You can lose the paper, but you know what you went through. <laughs> you know you graduated. And so it's a sign and it points to something else. That's what it's referring to. The Lord's Supper points to something else. Baptism points to something else. They are symbolic. The bread, of course, to represent the meal for the soul. The wine to represent life found in the blood. That is, we need Jesus, we need Jesus, we need Jesus. It's his blood and it's his body. And the water represents purification by the Holy Spirit upon us. That's it. Nothing more fancy than that. But I think lots of people get that. They understand the symbolism. It's the seal that's a little more complicated. A seal. To impress upon the soul, or means of grace, upon the conscience in particular. Like the king's seal upon the letter, to authenticate his authority to you. Or through you in this case, if you have, I got you know, letters from the king, I can do X, Y, Z now, I've got the authority. Or in this case, God's love for you. A certificate of authenticity is another way of looking at it. To therefore reaffirm to the world that you are a believer. To reaffirm to yourself sometimes, like John's ring, to put your marital issues into perspective. But sealing does not work without faith. A faith that consciously apprehends Christ as their Savior. Just like John, if he was completely clueless about his marriage and didn't believe in his marriage, that ring would do nothing, would it? It would actually probably be evidence of his hatred and he'd just throw it away. Just one more reminder of the thing that I hate. So you have to already believe and trust in God for the seal to have its effect upon your conscience and strengthen you to be more confident in following Jesus. The seal settles your mind about how much God loves you. That's what it's there for. Like a kiss, an anniversary ring, an anniversary card, or a ring. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified whence it comes to pass that the names and the effects of the one are attributed to the other, the confession points out, which is a fancy way of saying we can speak of eating spiritual food, physical food like we're talking about eating and believing in Jesus. The language of the physical and the spiritual can overlap and talk about one another, although they're not the same thing. You can eat the bread and be an unbeliever, and it means nothing to you. You can have the waters of baptism flow upon your head, and if you're an unbeliever and never confess Christ, it means nothing to you. But we read in the Bible as though, like it's magical, right? They, they drink of the water, and they drink of Christ, it's said. Every single one of them? Well, we know it wasn't every single one of them because a number of them died in unbelief in the desert. The Bible tells us that. So their drinking was not a drinking to any effect. It was just literally water and nothing else. 
And so this is talking about the union of the sacrament and the act, the spiritual act of believing. The name and effects of one, the rock, the eating, the being filled up, and the quail, and the bread, and the wine, and the drinking and eating, all these physical things, the names and the effects of that, are attributed to the idea of believing in Jesus. But it's not confusing the two. He's just going back and forth between two different domains, as it were. They ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. That was Jesus. He's using the language of physical things to talk about spiritual things. That's called sacramental language. Sacramental language. That's it. Nothing more fancy than that. And that's important because people like the Roman Catholics are saying, no, you're literally drinking the blood of Christ, aren't you? It says, you know, hey, right here, they drank Christ. No, the believers drank Christ. That is, that's still a metaphor, right? They believed in Christ. That's all that's saying. It's metaphorical language. That's all sacramental language is. Figures of speech. But to highlight the importance and the intimacy of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They did not eat Christ's body with their mouth. They spiritually believed in the Messiah to come. That's what that means. They're in the act of physically eating. So at the same time of physically eating and drinking food and water, they also believed. That's it. You eat and you believe at the same time, but they're two different events happening at the same time in the same person. That's it. Don't make it more complicated than that. So that there are two distinct events occurring at the same time, eating manna like they did in the Old Testament, eating the bread today, while believing that is trusting in Jesus. That's it. That's sacramental language. And that's important because, again, you have a whole denomination, and they are a large denomination, Roman Catholics, who run around saying, no, no, but it says, but it says, but it says. And they don't understand the language of the Bible and the application of the Bible and its use. So it's not confusion, but attribution by metaphor. We do this, the Bible does this, Roman Catholics admit this, Christ says, I am the door. Last I checked, they don't literally believe Jesus is a door. He, he uses the verb, is, right? I am a door. I am the door to the sheepfold, right? You have to go through me. Really? Literally? Or is that a metaphor? It's obviously a metaphor, a figure of speech. To highlight how important it is that you have to believe in Jesus. That's it. And they make it all complicated and confusing. Christ is the bread. Christ is not literally the bread. (laughs) He's not literally the vine in which we reside in. To use yet another metaphor of Christ's own choosing. Nobody believes he's literally a vine. Christ is truly here, brothers and sisters, in a unique way when his word is fully preached. And we believe upon that. And we feed upon him every day we believe in him. Every day we hear the preaching. Every day we read his word, brothers and sisters. So it's not even just the Lord's Supper. Just that the Lord's Supper has that unique aspect of the physicality of it, right? Sensible to the senses. You can taste it, feel it, even smell it. The Lord's Supper, talk about eating Christ is not literal, but metaphorical language of believing in Jesus Christ. Baptism, talk of salvation by baptism, is metaphorical language of spiritual reality of being born again. You have that in 1 Peter, for example. The sacraments, lastly, are for your growth. Means of grace, a special means of grace called the sacraments, which are signs and seals of the covenant of grace, and a seal is just the aspect in which your faith is strengthened, your conscience is fortified with God's love. There you go, third point in a nutshell, right? Sacraments are for your growth. 
to seal through feeding and drinking Jesus Christ. Baptism or Lord's Supper don't automatically help you grow. You must eat with the mouth of faith to mix, again, the two domains. It's just metaphorical language. You must believe. Faith or trust in the promise of the gospel given to us and symbolized in outward form in the Lord's Supper. That is why preaching must accompany the sacraments to explain the gospel intelligently so that you may grow in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in Peter, in the knowledge and the grace, you cannot grow in grace without knowledge. It's a, it's a bare minimum. You have to have that. Of course, you've got to have obedience, but on the flip side, we know our obedience is going to be limited. So you don't rest and rely upon your obedience, but upon Christ. And you can meditate upon your baptism. So although the baptism occurred once, Many, many years ago for many of us. It still applies to you today, right? Because baptism is the outward symbolization, partly, of you being separated from the world and dedicated to God. Are you still dedicated to him? Yes, nothing's changed. I haven't, you have not renounced your baptism, is another way of saying it. Like you haven't renounced your citizenship as an American. You only have it once, right? You don't just like become a citizen and yet again process the paper. It only happens once. You're born or you make the oath. We all need to make more oaths again. <laughs> That's it. Baptism is the same thing. You can grow thereby by meditating upon the fact that God and his special providence, especially for the children, brought you to baptism so you can grow up and follow him. He didn't give it to other people. He gave it to you. And that means something, and it should. Christ tells us to eat his body, yet he explains what he means by that. It's the final way of reinforcing what, what it means to feed upon Christ in the language of the Bible. John 6 So he who feeds on me will live because of me. Verse 58, this is the bread which comes down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? I don't want to eat the body of Christ. This is crazy. And Christ says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. It's not about eating physical food. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Do you believe my words and you have life? That's what Jesus is saying. The Lord's Supper does not replace the words of Jesus, but rather are outward manifestations, symbolisms of the words of life here in the Bible, brothers and sisters. The Lord's Supper and baptism are there to strengthen your faith, your new man, your soul, brothers and sisters. Come to the sacraments knowing that he is and the rewarder by grace of those who diligently seek him by his strength and power. Let us pray. We thank you, God Almighty, for your word. We thank you, Lord, God above, for knowing our weak estates and giving us the sacraments to be appendages to the word of God. To be used to strengthen our weak faith, Lord, but not to replace the Bible or our faith. Help us, Lord, to understand it that way, God, and to continue to grow thereby and to be thankful for such blessings. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing hymn 196, 196.
and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.